It's my pleasure to introduce uh, my colleague, Yannis uh, Yanu, who is a professor of strategy entrepreneurship at London Business School. Uh, and when I was talking this morning about uh, relationship between practitioner and academics and what we stand for, I think Yannis really embodies uh, that in the sense that he's a passionate speaker and a teacher, and I'm sure you will see in a moment, and actually a really top-notch researcher uh, who really doesn't compromise when he does research. Uh, he's very careful uh, in his uh, data, results, and message. And he's passionate about uh, what we are going to talk about now, that is ESG, and in general, how it does have a positive uh, impact. So it's my pleasure to have Yanis to talk. Thank you, Yanis. Thank you. Thank you very much. Uh, Thank you for inviting me. Uh, good morning, everyone. Good morning. You see, I've been teaching a lot recently, so, <laughs> so I hope the coffee was good. So it's really a true pleasure to be here with you today to share some uh, of the work that me and my co-authors have been doing on this uh, space of ESG, sustainability, corporate social responsibility. At the risk of stating the obvious, let me start by saying that all companies around the world these days, they face some sort of social or environmental pressure, right? Increasing demands and expectations by an increasingly diverse set of stakeholders. Companies are expected to be good stewards of the environment. They are expected to care deeply about their local communities. In other words, they, they face these pressures to care about stakeholders over and above, and in many cases, in addition to shareholders and to increasing their uh, financial performance. In other words, and as uh, the, the CEO of BlackRock said recently in his letter, companies are expected to have a positive social impact to contribute towards uh, an inclusive and sustainable growth, in addition to, of course, being financially profitable and successful. Now, the first question is, why now? Why is it that companies are facing these pressures now more so than ever before? Well, here I always use my favorite Spider-Man quote, which is, with great power comes great responsibility. Right? The footprint of uh, the modern business corporation is huge and is increasing. Consider, for instance, some numbers that were put out recently by Global Justice Now. So these guys rated and ranked the 100 largest economic entities around the world. And in a staggering number, 69 of the 100 largest economic entities are actually companies, and only 31 of them are actually countries. And if you take the top 10 corporations combined in terms of their revenue, they are larger than the bottom 180 countries around the world. Now, this data is corroborated, especially when you take other measures, like the total revenues of the top 1,000 companies, and you compare that, what percentage is it for the GDP of the OECD countries? The numbers are increasing in recent years, and that tells you a lot about how far-reaching the impact of the modern business corporation can be. But, you know, that kind of positive impact needs the right institutions, the right people, the right motives in place in order to materialize. But the potential is there, and these numbers say, well, 
you know, what is the role of business vis-a-vis -vis the role of governments and countries when it comes to addressing big global challenges like climate change, like extreme poverty and inequality, and so on. Now consider some companies like Unilever, for instance. Unilever is a company whose goal and objective purpose is to make sustainable living commonplace. We're talking about a company that, through its products and services, can reach 2 to 2.5 billion people on the planet on a daily basis. But Unilever is not alone. What we observe in practice is that many companies increasingly uh, develop a sophisticated understanding of what are these social, social environmental challenges. Some may see them as risks that need to be mitigated and managed. Others see them as profitable business opportunities. At the end of the day, they are massive problems in need of efficient and scalable solutions. So what we increasingly see is that companies start bringing these considerations into the core of their organizational structures, into the core of their strategies, as well as into the core of their business models. So in research in recent years, we understand that if companies decide to go beyond compliance, that constitutes a strategic choice. How responsible you choose to be towards the environment and towards the broader society is, at the end of the day, a strategic choice. And as scholars, we care a lot about strategic choices, and we care in particular about what is the impact of integrating these uh, environmental and social issues into corporate strategy in terms of a company's ability to establish and maintain a competitive advantage. Now, this is not a question that is new. It has been studied in the literature for a long time, and many, many papers have been written asking, you know, does sustainability pay or not? But in recent years, as I'm sure you know as well, the emergence of more compatible, more accurate, and more reliable ESG data allow us to examine this issue across industries and across time, and therefore, in conjunction with a number of methodological as well as theoretical advancements in the academic literature, they allow us to examine the question of the link between responsibility and financial performance in a more effective way. And I think most scholars today, given the accumulation of rigorous evidence and studies, would agree that there is a positive causal link between truly integrating environmental and social issues in the way you do business and financial performance in the short run as well as in the long run. However, attitudes towards these companies have not always been positive as they appear to be today. In fact, and in a lot of the work that I do, I focus on the critical role of capital markets and how they evaluate, assess, react, reward, or punish corporate engagement with responsibility. So let me take you back to the 1990s, when all these ESG trends were not yet in the public eye, and companies were not facing that kind of pressure that they're facing today. Now, in, back the, in this study that uh, we did with my co-authors, we tried to understand how is it that investment analysts reacted to companies that were socially responsible in the public equity space. Some people would say, well, they didn't care. Who cared? In the early 90s, who cared about this? The term ESG was not even invented yet. Who cared about this TSR stuff? Nobody. Analysts were going to ignore. In fact, that wasn't the case. They cared, but they didn't care in the way you might expect. 
what we did find in this study is that if you were a socially responsible company, the analysts were more pessimistic. Let me repeat that. If, in other words, if you were doing well on CSR ratings, the analysts were much more likely to go conservative, to issue a more pessimistic recommendation. Why is that the case? Well, because of the shareholder value myth, the idea that the only and the best way to achieve financial performance in the long run is by an exclusive focus on shareholders. Now, those trends have changed over time. If we proceed from the 1990s to come down to the 2000s, that trend has shifted, and now analysts became neutral and then more positive towards companies that integrate ESG into the way uh, they do business. But it's not just about integration. The markets are becoming increasingly more sophisticated in the way they understand ESG. In another study, we looked at, more broadly speaking, access to capital. Fundamental issue for companies, right? Why is it the case, and does it even matter if you're a responsible company in terms of your access to capital? And what we found in this study is that it enables, it lowers capital constraints if you're a responsible company. Why is that the case? Well, we even know the mechanisms. Responsible companies are more transparent companies. Responsible companies that pay attention to their stakeholders have more stable, more long-term stakeholder relationships. How does that translate for the market? Lower informational asymmetry, lower risk of agency costs. That's exactly what you need to allocate more capital. And you see that increasingly in the public domain, not just in our theoretical papers and empirical papers, but very, very publicly. ING and Philips, the first of its kind alone, whose interest rate is explicitly linked to ESG metrics. ING told Philips that the better you do on sustainability metrics, the lower the interest you're going to pay on your one billion loan. And clearly you've seen, I'm pretty sure you've seen the other trends like Larry Fink, institutional investors, a lot of pressure on companies to disclose on climate change and climate change related risks. The whole idea of stranded assets, even leading to some people to talk about a carbon emissions time bomb, a bubble, because a number of assets may be significantly overpriced because they're not accounting for climate change risk. And again, going back to my point about sophistication, the other thing we found in a different study is that it's not just about ESG data, let's add everything together. It's a much more sophisticated understanding. If I look at companies and I differentiate between what they say and what they do, in other words, externally oriented ESG actions and internally oriented ESG actions, what you find is the larger the gap, the larger the detrimental impact that it has on its market value. In other words, the markets are able to see through if what you say doesn't follow with implementation or vice versa, right? If they implement a lot, but you fail to inform the market about what it is that you're doing. And that gap is not only apparent to the investment community. More recently, in another study, we looked at the impact on customers. What if you declare one policy, let's say on environmental issues about your products, and then you do not implement. We found significant evidence that that leads to lower customer satisfaction. So you see that the pressures come from fundamental and key material stakeholders for companies, whether it's their investors, whether it's their customers, increasingly from their own employees when it comes to corporate purpose, for instance, to be more responsible and more accountable, if you like, to all these 
um, stakeholders. Now that generates to a very fundamental question, which is how do I recognize these companies? How do I know which of the companies are socially responsible versus those that might greenwash, that might lie, that might not be truthful in terms of what they're doing? Because there's a lot of information out there, right? There's ESG, there's ratings and rankings, there's the best place to work for, there's the high reputation rankings, there's the environmental reputation rankings, there's ESG reports, there's sustainability reports, there's integrated reports. It's endless. Now, we actually have rigorous evidence about what is it that distinguishes what I would call a more traditional way of doing business versus a responsible way of doing business. And this, is, this kind of evidence is what allows us to talk about the emergence of this idea of the responsible organization. So in some of the research we did, we were able to identify four pillars that allows us at least to some extent to detect this true commitment. To detect, in other words, the extent to which responsibility is embedded into the corporate DNA. Those pillars are corporate governance, stakeholder engagement, transparency and accountability, and the time horizon of decision making. So in my remaining time, allow me to briefly go through those four pillars. First of all, corporate governance. What distinguishes the responsible companies is that they put their foot where their mouth is. They do understand that they're managing the corporation for a set of stakeholders. Therefore, responsibility is a formal board responsibility. There is a subcommittee at the board level that oversees sustainability issues. And which, what is one of the most powerful tools we have in organizations? Incentives. They incentivize both their executives as well as their employees on financial as well as non-financial metrics. Stakeholder engagement. Here, responsible companies do not deal with problems of their stakeholders ad hoc. They have structures in place before, during, and after any stakeholder engagement process. They train their managers. They report publicly. They report to the stakeholder, to the board, as well as internally, what was the outcome of the stakeholder engagement process. They have structures in place when they sit with the, down with the stakeholder to resolve an issue to bring up the opportunities, the costs, the risks, the goals of the engagement process. In other words, it's not a talk. It's embedded, it's structured, and it's deep into the organization because it precisely the organization cares about its stakeholders. Third, it's about the decision-making time horizon, and in particular, the focus of these companies on the long term and also being effective communicators of their long-term commitment. What we found here is that you know, these were public companies. We could see who was in their investor base. And we can break down investors into more dedicated and more transient investors. More dedicated ones are the ones that have more focused portfolios and trade less often. Clearly, those gravitated towards the responsible companies. They were holding longer. They apply long-term strategies. Whereas on the traditional model, you see much more diversified investors that hold less time uh, compared to the dedicated ones. But also, when they talked to their investment analysts, we could get the transcripts of the calls to their investment analysts. And you do some keyword analysis, and it's, it's, it's really staggering. The responsible companies have a much better balance between discussing financial and non-financial, and between discussing short-term and long-term strategies and objectives. The traditional companies are much more heavily focused on financial talk and on short-term. 
which kind of makes sense because that's also the kind of investors that you attract, the more transient investors. Now, the last pillar is about transparency and accountability. We found that what distinguishes responsible companies is that they collect ESG data in a much better way. They are much more transparent about it. The quality of their disclosures is much higher compared to traditional companies, and they better be. I mean, if you are incentivizing your, your employees and executives on ESG, you better make sure that you gather ESG in a way that is credible, it's accurate, and it makes sense, and it's reliable in your context. And how do they diffuse accountability? They, well, they do so by adopting, for instance, environmental health and safety standards, human rights standards, in their selection of partners, in their supply chain. So they diffuse that sense of accountability, not only for themselves, but throughout their, usually their ecosystem. So four pillars that allow us to talk about the emergence of this new and different type of corporation, a new house of sustainability, uh, if you like, that allows all these other things that we typically talk about sustainability to materialize. For instance, sustainability may be better for employee recruitment and retainment and motivation. It might be better from brand loyalty. It might be better for access to finance and so on. Yes, that's all true. Those are the mechanisms. But in order for those mechanisms to materialize, you need an organizational structure. And what the evidence shows is that those four pillars uh, uh, constitute the key differentiating factors between a traditional company and a responsible one. Now, the good news is that, you know, we now know what it is. I mean, the bad news is that there's no piecemeal approach. It's not that, oh, I'll increase my transparency and suddenly I'm a responsible company, for instance. They all come together because you see how they reinforce each other and how you create synergies in terms of, for instance, the quality of your ESG data and how you incentivize your people. So that's, in a nutshell, what we currently know about this emergence of the responsible organization. Clearly, there's a lot more research and a lot more that needs to be done to understand these processes better as academics, as investors, as public equity markets, and indeed as private equity markets. This is a space that Francesca and I ran a survey a couple of years ago to understand the, the state of ESG integration. And, and unfortunately, we are lacking the data to see how this is actually done in the private equity market. But the learnings that we know in terms of how companies behave, how can I distinguish, how, what are the mechanisms through which sustainability may be profitable, it doesn't matter if it's from the public or the private side. It's about how companies are implementing on the ground. So just to conclude, it's really a true pleasure to be here with you today. I'm actually quite thrilled to be seeing this ESG panel showing up increasingly more in private equity conference. I've been to Super Return for a couple of years now, and even there they have an entire pre-conference day on ESG. So it's really a, a, a space with uh, unique capabilities, if you like. It's exactly because of the holding time horizons that you have, the power you have to influence what's happening at portfolio companies all the way to the board level. So I'm really looking forward to first your questions and then really engaging conversations about ESG and, and performance in the private equity space in particular. So thank you very much for your attention. I, I fully un, um, buy into the ESG argument, having studied at LBS myself. Oh, wonderful. Um, <laughs> but well, the question uh, I want to ask is, in the outside world, especially in industries like banking and industries like telecoms and even industries like healthcare, most of the annual 
sort of accounts and returns are heavily scrutinized by the regulators, particularly in the area of cost to income and pricing. Mm -hmm. Now, that being the case, how would you justify ESG, which has a very long-term payoff, and it may well increase your costs in the short run, how would you actually get over the regulatory mm. scrutiny? In that respect, I do think that sustainability and, and, and ESG and responsibility is held to a double standard, right? Because one could turn and say, well, yeah, and R&D is a short-term cost until you actually invent something. But we don't see R&D that way. And marketing is a cost until you actually materialize sales, but we don't see it that way. Right? So the, I think there is, I do see this, uh, I would call it cultural shift away from seeing this as a cost and more so towards investment. Now, I do th also think that we're going through this period of experimentation. So of course, you're going to see companies doing, making a lot of errors. You're going to see companies attempting to greenwash. You're going to see companies do all, all sorts of things. But the idea that any company going forward will afford to ignore these issues is, is just not true. No company is going to afford to ignore these issues. But it, it will take time. And I see it in my teaching, in my engagement with companies. People tend to have beliefs about this, uh, these issues, right? I should or should not. You don't have beliefs, I hope, for a corporate finance model, but you do have beliefs about the responsibility of your organization. And sometimes those are deeply ingrained beliefs that change with societal changes. Think about the, the millennia generation coming online and say, well, you know, I want to work for companies whose purpose is aligned with my own personal purpose. Think about, you know, uh, recently I was teaching in, in some of, let's say, a sin industry, and people are... I felt it. People are having existential crisis of, should I even be working in this industry? How are my kids going to look at me when they found out that eventually the industry I've been working in? So I do feel that those societal changes are coming. And a part of that is start looking at investments in responsibility in the, way that, in the same way that we look at R&D and so on. And I mean, on that point, let me give you one piece of evidence. With Cother of mine, we looked at, you know, many people say, oh, Yanni, you know, when the crisis hits, they're going to drop everything and focus on financials. That's wrong. We looked at what companies actually did during the American, uh, the financial crisis of oh, the 07, 09. And what you see is that the best of companies maintain their investments in innovation and sustainability, and they cut back on employees and tangible assets. So they reallocated their assets in such a way so that to maintain the key intangibles of which, you know, of which innovation and responsibility were the critical ones. And, you know, long behold, after the crisis, the ones that maintained those two intangibles were the ones that performed better. Right? So I do think that attitudes are changing in that respect. So it was a long answer, but I think I hope I got to your point. There's <laughs> five more minutes. I think we can take uh, one or two more questions. Yes, here at the front. You mentioned at the beginning of your speech, Paul Pullman at Unilever. Yes. So I happen to know Paul personally, as I worked with him in Procter & Gamble a long while ago. And um, he's definitely, for me, one of the best responsible CEOs in Europe, if not in the world. Yet, very recently, he's been put under a lot of pressure at the time of the Kraft takeover bid, yep. where they basically, his shareholders said, you've taken your eyes off the ball in terms of profitability because you were all in this responsible quest. Mm -hmm. So what did he miss? Where could he have avoided what became basically an issue that he had to quickly fix by going with private equity measures and raise, the, uh, raise his profitability uh, yeah. in a very short term and basically tarnishing his whole leadership 
of eight years with this event. Yeah, so I'm going to avoid kind of uh, criticizing him directly about what he did or he didn't do, but uh, I'll try to answer the question a bit more broadly than that. Remember when I told you about the results of this study, right, in terms of what these companies do, and I said they have a better balance between long-term and short-term. They have a better balance between financial and non-financial. Now, that's one myth that a lot of people think about sustainability, that, you know, you replace financials with non-financials, that you replace the short-term with the long-term. And that's also wrong. It's about the balancing the two. I don't know if in that case, you know, they might have gone too far on one side or the other, but what we know from the evidence is the balance between the two, right? Because if you are going to achieve synergies between the two, then you better know how they interact. You better see your strategies integrated. So the financials cannot be independent from the non-financials. The short term cannot be independent from the long term. And I do think that in many ways, the short termism of the market, not the excessive short termism, the short termism of the market is a disciplinary mechanism that should be there to avoid situations in which you say, oh, this is a sustainable strategy and it's going to you know, pay off in the long term. Well, you don't just wake up one day and say, oh, this is the long term. You know, long term is a series of short term. So when we, we did this study on performance, you see that these short term effects, yes, some years they're not that great as others, but there is lower volatility, for instance, because of this commitment. Now, I don't want to go too much into details on that, but I'll tell you two things. From what I've read, because clearly I'm an outsider, right? So I don't have inside information what happened. But when the FT article kind of described how Paul Polman avoided the, the takeover, you say, oh, yeah. You know, this is pure business. This is someone that has the long-term vision, but when it bites, it bites. It can deal with that as well. Secondly, I'm not sure if you've seen it, but a couple of weeks afterwards, Kraft decided to put 200-something million into its CSR programs after the failed takeover. So the impact might have been also on the Kraft side. And it's interesting, given the sophistication of the markets, that if uh, a 200 million, which I'm guessing from graph might not be that much, kind of a, a responsibility uh, leave, fig leave, is going to be enough to potentially you know, avert a failure in the next uh, takeover bit. But again, you're adding, pointing out that sustainability needs discipline. It needs the short-term discipline of the markets as well. And that's why the, the role of the markets is so important. And definitely, we shouldn't lose of the sight that we're not replacing objectives here. We're just simply complexifying them and making them, you know, in looking at them as, as growth opportunities. That's a big zero staring at me over there. So um, I'm, I'm sorry I need to have, we have to end, but I'll be delighted to uh, catch up with more questions over coffee. Thank you. This was a London Business School Review podcast, bringing you fresh ideas and opinion from London Business School's experts. To listen and read more, visit www.london.edu forward slash LBSR.